Welcome to Market Scale Software and Technology. I'm Sean Heath, and today I have an opportunity to have a conversation with Jonathan Nelson. He's the CEO and Managing Director for Hack Fund. Jonathan, how goes it? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Hey, I got to say, um, you're kind of nerdy, and I say that as a, as a badge of respect. Why Hack Fund? Why aren't you running Google or, you know, why aren't you the boss at <laughs> Dell? What made you decide that you had to do this thing? I'm chronically unemployable. Um, I just, I really have a hard time working for other people. I was a nurse. I went back to school for software engineering. And even when I was a nurse, I did a lot of contracting. I worked for 35 hospitals in five years. Um, and then I moved to Silicon Valley, went back to school for software engineering, and I just decided I was going to do my own thing. I was going to start my own startup. And they, um, Along the way, I started uh, having this series of events called Hackers and Founders, and it was basically just nerds getting together in a bar to to meet each other. And I started seeing a bunch of problems when nerds from around the globe were trying to move to Silicon Valley um, to raise money. And that was the beginning of Hackers and Founders, the business, and the beginning of the Hack Fund. So let's talk about the, the concept behind Hack Fund. Just give me the nuts and bolts. What exactly is it that you're trying to accomplish? So basically, um, I, I spent a couple of years volunteering at an SEC committee um, looking at why so much money gets concentrated here in Silicon Valley and why so little money gets invested anywhere else Um really in the globe, uh, but especially across the United States. If you have a startup, for instance, in Dallas, Texas, um, it's really hard to raise capital. And the reason that is, is because it's really hard to get your company sold. And right now, how investors make money investing in the companies is pretty much they only make money when you can sell your startup to Google or when you IPO your company on the NASDAQ. And both of those things are catching lightning in a bottle. And um, it's otherwise, if an investor invests in your company, their money is kind of frozen inside of your company. And it only gets liquid again if you IPO or if you get acquired. And I decided to fix that. And that's, that's how the hack fund um, started. So in a nutshell, we're using blockchain. Um, and creating digital stock certificates with them. Um, and these digital stock certificates let me um, let people buy, sell, and trade the stock in my fund online um, on cryptocurrency exchanges. And they can actually invest a tiny amount of money, and that money will get invested into startups. The superpower that that gives me, the fact that my fund is liquid, that my shares can be bought and sold, is that I don't ever have to ask a company where your what your exit strategy is. What's your plan to get acquired by Google? I don't care. What I really care about with our fund is I care about, is your company going to grow, and can it grow, and how fast will it grow? Okay, it sounds like you would probably make traditional stock exchanges very nervous because you have a little more flexibility than they do. Are you, do you get like the weird side eye from anybody who's associated with NASDAQ or any of the exchanges? Do, do you get some weird looks or some angry emails saying, Hey, stop that? 
<laughs> um, actually, um, a friend of mine who's actually joined us, an advisor, um, she was actually frustrated at NASDAQ. Um, she was their head of new products. Um, she's actually one of our advisors. Um, I've talked with the London Stock Exchange about what we're doing. Um, they were nervous. They think that we're obviously a little bit early into this market. Um, but the people that I'm talking to are rather forward thinking and maybe a little bit frustrated with senior management that, you know, this type of product isn't going to be a, uh, they're not really interested in this type of product, but they understand that this disruption is coming. Well, let's talk about that because the blockchain technology, a lot of people, just the layperson, when they hear blockchain, they think, oh, cryptocurrency. They don't realize that blockchain is a concept. It's not just a financial vehicle. No. There, it's a, it's a mechanism to perform tasks and it's an environment. Uh, or actually, I guess you could say it's a set of rules. It's so hard to pin it down. It's so wide ranging. So, so in my mind, the blockchain is really a receipt that runs on 30 million computers. And so when I transfer something from one person to another, um, that transaction goes on this blockchain receipt in the sky. If I buy stock on the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ tracks that, you know, I bought it and you sold it. And the NASDAQ keeps that receipt. The blockchain allows us to record those transactions on this receipt or on this ledger that's distributed and 30 million people have a copy of it. And so it's really hard to fake a transaction. It's really hard to say, hey, um, I didn't buy that stock um, because everybody has a copy of this receipt. And so it allows for some pretty innovative stuff. Um, you know, the first version of that was Bitcoin. I'm going to send you this thing and I'm going to get a receipt. And so now you own it and I don't. So, well, let's kind of use this sort of thing as a type of money. Um, I'm much more interested in using this type of ledger, this type of receipt or tracking system um, as digital stock certificates. And that, in my mind, is going to be really disruptive. Um but yeah, it's hard to wrap your mind around, um, and there's a lot of kind of buzz around it. Um, but I, I, the receipt kind of metaphor is something that I found that's probably one of the more accurate and one of the more understandable ways to explain it. Now, you mentioned that Hack Fun started out in just a little, you know, hanging out in pubs or whatever adult establishments yep. in Silicon Valley, yep. you've expanded pretty exponentially. Yes. You're in like 45, 48 countries now you have, I mean, you guys are, it's, it, you're not just hanging out down at the corner. So <laughs> I'm curious, the concept of using blockchain technology as a financial vehicle, yep. what are the barriers and the benefits when dealing around the globe there there have to be some massive roadblocks that you have to navigate but there also have to be some amazing benefits no absolutely so i mean our events have been held in 140 cities around the globe and we've had about 300,000 tech entrepreneurs attend our events over the last decade um and it's because we have this huge network of tech entrepreneurs and a lot of them their biggest complaint is how do i fund my company that's why we ended up building this thing. 
Now, um, the advantage of this is that, you know, the internet um, enabled amazing things. Like anyone could essentially become a blogger and start publishing. You know, you no longer had to get a job as a reporter in a magazine or a newspaper to actually be able to start creating content. You know, podcasts, you know, democratize radio and democratize media. You know, people can set up YouTube channels. Um, this blockchain thing is going to do a lot of the same for financial services. Um, and so now we have this thing where I have a digital stock certificate. It's on the Internet and everyone can actually buy it. Theoretically, the biggest obstacle, especially since I volunteered at the SEC for a couple of years is legal and regulatory. Um, I spent about a year and a half figuring out how to actually be able to do this in the United States um, in a legal way. Um, and unfortunately, I cannot sell this to people in the United States. I have a very small number of wealthy people that I can sell this thing to in the United States. Um, other countries aren't nearly as uptight as the United States are about securities laws. Um, but it's been a lot of legal and regulatory hurdles that we've actually gone through. I've talked to 12 law firms in 10 different legal jurisdictions um, to be able to get the pathway to this thing um, figured out. Well, one of the things that the Hack Fund has been able to do is it really is a democratization of venture investing. Yep. It really does. It opens up the the door for income levels that range the entire spectrum to actually be actively involved in investing either in themselves or receiving investing for their startup it seems that it would be something that governments would naturally encourage because you know the quote a rising tide lifts all boats yep. you would think that as more people are given the opportunity to succeed and to support themselves that that would be nothing but positive, but I'm betting that's not the pushback that you're getting. No, uh, the, the pushback that I've gotten in the United States is we have a, a pretty strict set of laws, and ostensibly it's to protect little old ladies from losing their retirements, and, and I completely understand. Um, you know, the reason that I built this product this way is because when I was a nurse, um, I was really frustrated at being a nurse and I wanted to make investments. I wanted to, you know, how can I actually, you know, invest in 300 tech companies as a nurse? Um, but if I had to buy a mutual fund, I'd have to have $5,000 before I can actually open an account. And then I'd have to, you know, start an automatic withdrawal. Um, the, the cost structure that we actually have is it costs me $2 to onboard a new investor with this fund. And so I have a financial product that eventually nurses in Mexico and emerging markets who don't necessarily have access to this type of investment. It costs me $2 to bring an investor on. So really, I have a product that people could invest $10 a month into a portfolio of 300 tech companies. Um, and that's, in my mind, incredibly disruptive. And I think the next two to four billion people coming into the financial services industry are going to need products like this because they come from, you know, countries where your average income is $10,000 a year. Um, so they don't have $5,000 to open up account at, you know, uh, whatever Joe's mutual fund company. Um, they're going to actually have to have products like this. 
Um, and that's really kind of what we're focusing on is building this next generation of financial products um, to not only democratize who can invest anywhere, anywhere in the world where it's legal, um, but also who can receive investment because we can invest anywhere in the world. Well, let's talk about both sides of that equation just briefly. Yep. Let's talk about the investors. So yep. obviously one of the benefits for investors is the liquid nature yep. that Hack provides. Um, let me see. I know that you really, really focus on vetting the startups. You Absolutely. really want to make sure that everything is on the up and up and above board and they're all great ideas. Absolutely. So you do a lot of the work, yep. right? You do a lot of the vetting. Yep. But the diversification and the way you handle returns, I'm really interested. Tell me about that because the way you handle returns is pretty unique. No, absolutely. So um, it's a little inside baseball, but the standard way um, the standard way a venture fund works is a venture fund will go to a nurse's pension, raise a hundred million dollars. Um, they'll charge a bunch of management fees and they invest into tech companies. And hopefully one out of those 50 tech companies ends up getting acquired by Google for a billion dollars. And when that happens, winner, winner, chicken dinner, everybody actually makes money. The venture capitalist gets a bit of the profit from that stock sale. Um, they keep 20% of the profit and then they send the pension fund, the money back to the pension fund and the nurses see, you know, a lovely 5% return um, on their portfolio. What we're actually doing is we're creating a vehicle where, you know, ostensibly the nurses could invest in a portfolio of 300 tech companies. And because it's liquid, they don't have to wait for a company to exit to get acquired to make money. What we do is we have a third party value our portfolio and they announce that we audit that we announce that publicly. And then the market decides, you know, did the portfolio increase in value or decrease in value? So essentially, I'm looking for companies that produce revenue and <gasps> profit. I said the P word in Silicon Valley. I'm so sorry. Um, How dare you? I'm offended and shocked and offended. I know. It's just, it's, it's terrible. Like, we actually want companies that sell software that actually make money, that have revenue. And, and I'm not really interested in, like, you know, your Instagram app to share your cat pictures. That's really not... Um, kind of a huge priority for us at the Hack Fund. These are companies that are producing revenues, that are growing, that are scaling, that are creating jobs, um, and they just happen to be outside of Silicon Valley. We will make investments in Silicon Valley, but our key differentiator is that we can go anywhere in the world um, because we're actually liquid. And so not only are we diversified across 300 different tech companies, but we're also very diversified geographically. Well, let's talk about the other half of the hack slash fund yep. uh, algorithm, and that is the hack side. Let's talk about the startup side. Yeah. This sounds to me like a massive weight off of their shoulders. I cannot imagine. Now, I work as an independent contractor, yep. and I like to think I have some degree of entrepreneurial spirit, but the only yep. product I'm ever selling is me. Yep. I can't imagine the weight that a a founder of a startup company has to carry 
night and day when they're worrying about where am I going to get the financing necessary to keep my employees here until we actually get to the point. Uh, that has to be just a nightmare. Oh, it is. And you and you're able to help alleviate that quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. And not only that, but you know, I came to Silicon Valley with this idea that I was going to build amazing software products and I was going to sell those and I was going to learn how to build a, a company around that. Um but when you're raising money, you realize that you actually have to sell stock. And then you actually become a stockbroker, sort of. And then you actually have two separate products. You have your investors who bought your stock that you have to worry about. But then you also have to actually build a company. And it's this balancing act. And, and you know, there's only so many people that are worldwide that are going to be willing to buy stock in your technology company. And the vast majority of those are concentrated in Silicon Valley. And so, um, you know, if you're around the world, not only, yes, do I have to build a company, do I have to build a great product, do I have to satisfy my customers, but also I have to satisfy the investors that I'm working with. And some of those investors get crabby. Some of those investors really want you to sell early. Um, some of those investors, if they're on your board, might fire you. Um, we try to be extremely founder friendly and I don't ever have to push this company to be sold unless the entrepreneur really wants to sell it. Um, and we try to be really, really helpful to the portfolio companies. Um, we've been doing this for five years. This is fund five for us. Um, we've been helping companies land in Silicon Valley and raise money for the last five years. And we have 25 people in three different countries now that help our portfolio of 55 companies. So we try to be very hands-on, very helpful, and really make it all about the entrepreneur. Um, and really try to be very entrepreneur focused because ultimately it's the crazy entrepreneur who's willing to, you know, sacrifice everything and put his financial future on the line to, to create, you know, this crazy, turn this crazy app into an actual business. Um, that's, it's really all about them in my mind. Well, ultimately, if you don't have the entrepreneurs coming up with the crazy ideas, there's nothing for investors to invest in. So it seems like perhaps, you know, give them a little space, let these guys spend more time thinking about how how they want to change the world and putting their efforts into doing that and not worrying so much about how they're going to pay for the process. Absolutely. And you would be surprised um, at the number of the number of investors that I've had for companies in my portfolio that really start to just kind of get abusive um, to the entrepreneur. And it's tragic when that happens and it's dumb and I don't understand it, but you know, it happens. I would imagine that in your career, you have run across people that had great ideas and the financial aspect of trying to get investors just discouraged them so much they just abandoned it and went to work at a fast food restaurant. Have you seen that happen? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, when I was a nurse, um, and I was an emergency room and trauma nurse for 20 years, I was asking one of my nursing instructors, why did someone die of cancer? Like, why do you actually die of cancer? And I stumped her and she kind of hemmed and hawed for a while and said, well, eventually everybody dies because their heart stops. But there's 25 different reasons that people's heart stops when they die of cancer. And I was like, that's actually something very profound that she just said. People die when their heart stops. When does a company die? It, it dies when the founders just lose heart. 
Um, it dies when the founder is sick and tired of not paying rent. It, it dies when, you know, things just become too hard and too discouraging. And, um, you know, how do we help more entrepreneurs succeed? And how do we, you know, take some of the crap out of their lives? And how do we actually help support them? Um so like, for instance, we had two companies, they almost died because the entrepreneurs didn't have health insurance. They got sick, went to the emergency room, um, ended up coming home with a $50,000 emergency room bill and company almost died because holy crap, they're going to have to declare bankruptcy. What are they going to do? So we've done things like I have a concierge doctor on call. I pay him $5,000 a year. And if one of my CEOs gets sick, I can send the doctor a text message and he will see them within 12 hours in his office and he charges them a $100 flat fee. Um, so how do we keep more entrepreneurs alive? How do we keep them successful? How do we keep them going? Um, in my mind, you know, the, the secret to having a long life is to not dying. The secret to having a successful tech company is to staying alive as a tech company till you figure out how to make enough money to pay your rent and put food on the table. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 stuff like that that really kind of that I'm obsessed with. How do we keep these companies going? Jonathan, I'm not going to lie. You're kind of a unique dude. There's not a lot of mindsets that bring that healthcare caregiver mindset into the tech space. So that's pretty cool. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Thanks. Today I've had the absolute pleasure and privilege of having a conversation with the CEO and managing director for the Hack Fund, Jonathan Nelson. Jonathan, man, thanks so much for taking time today. This has been really cool. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. A lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.